NATO extends its mission in Libya for another three months while National Transitional Council fighters attempt to take Gaddafi's last strongholds. Lumley's legacy? Thousands of former Gurkhas have settled in Britain, but not everyone's happy about it. And behind the scenes on Downton Abbey's battlefields, how experts are helping avoid military clangers on screen. NATO has extended its mission in Libya for another three months. The current mandate was due to run out next week. Despite the fall of Colonel Gaddafi's regime, officials have insisted bombing raids will continue. The National Transitional Council say their forces have now taken control of much of the southern city of Sabah and the outpost of Jafra. But fierce fighting continues at Gaddafi strongholds Bani Walid and Sirte. Well, I'm joined in the studio by our defence correspondent, Christopher Lee. Christopher, good day to you. Good day. Um, how important is Sirte to the overall Libya mission? It's the wrapping up, isn't it? I mean, you think in terms of what towns and cities look like in this whole war. Uh, there are about 17 major towns, most of them along that northern coast, the Mediterranean coast. Out of the 17, three, maybe four, were outstanding. Sirte was important to them. Um, Bani Walid, where they thought at one point that Gaddafi was, but these are Gaddafi strongholds. And then when you go south, you get to Sabha which is the gateway, if you like, down into sub-Saharan Africa, where some of the Gaddafi family have sort of uh, nipped off. And so these are the ones that are left, and there are four left. We think that Sahab, uh, Sabah has, has fallen. We think that Serb, it's sort of outskirts, uh, and it's quite a large place. It's, it, it, you know, it's, no, it's no series of mud huts. So they are extremely important. The other thing, of course, is they represent the people that ostensibly still support Gaddafi, and that becomes also important. So then they can turn around and say, OK, the whole thing is wrapped up as far as we're concerned. And, of course, next week, when they want to announce or be in a position to announce that they've got a, a first cabinet in Tripoli, they want to be able to say, no outstanding pockets of resistance. How much is there a, a kind of, um, not propaganda, but, but, but sort of winning the hearts and minds? Cert falls, the, uh, the home of Colonel Gaddafi, and the NTC can come out and say, well, here we are, we've cracked it, we're, we're on the road to, to winning this war. I think militarily they can then say they have cracked it. Uh, but that doesn't mean to say hearts and minds. It is still a country that uh, surprisingly has come together, but it's still a country, a state, which is full of uh, tribal allegiances, family allegiances as well. And so these are very, very cautious stepping days. But if you've got cert, especially, and Bunny will lead, um, then you can say, right, we're on the way. Uh, NATO Secretary General Anders Fogh Rasmussen has said that NATO's warplanes will stay in the air for as long as Libya civilians uh, remain under threat. But in terms of the, the air capabilities, the UK is starting to reduce them. What can you tell us about that? Well, um, if you go back two weeks when the Prime Minister uh, David Cameron was in Tripoli, remember, and he made his speech in, in, in the square, um, he said, we will continue to support you. And he said, we will help you find... Uh, Gaddafi, Colonel Gaddafi. Now, look what's coming out of uh, the, the British forces uh, or British air, air assets that are coming out of the Libya operation. When you think about it, uh, typhoons. The typhoons have got no job to do now. 
And so the tornadoes stay because if you're still going to try and hit ground assets to knock out command and control radars or anything else, that, or, or even the odd tank that may still be there, then you need the, ty- uh, you need the tornadoes, not the typhoons. The other thing, uh, there are five uh, Apaches uh, helicopters in HMS Ocean. Um, three of those will come out. And so basically, um, we're not the only guys there. You know, we've still got the French are still there doing their zapping. And so that's, we can now pull out the other thing to consider, of course. And that is the assets that we do have there. One wonders for how long they could last there without stretching. HMS Liverpool, I think, is held together by Blue Tack at the moment. I want to talk also about uh, David Cameron, who's uh, in New York championing interventionism, I guess, to the UN's uh, General Assembly. Is that the right thing for him to be doing at this stage? Yeah, he is. I mean, it is it, 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 fascinating. Um, I was in Chicago in 1999 when um, uh, Tony Blair gave a very similar speech, which really, that was the speech that inspired George Bush, who wasn't even president then, to go in t- later and triggered it to go into Iraq. And what Cameron is saying is, look, listen, United Nations guys, um, you, can, you can pass agendas, you can applaud people, etc., but clapping hands doesn't fix the problem. And it may be, not every time, it may be that you have to take far more assertive, far more obvious action. Um, this is, I, I'm not quite sure it's a Blair speech, but I could hear Blair making the same speech. Uh, President Obama has hailed Cameron as as outstanding and he's described the relationship between the US and the UK as extraordinarily special. Now, it's not that long ago that we were sort of shying away from the term special relationship. and now dogs. Yeah, now it's extraordinarily special. What's changed? Uh, Well, I don't know. He's probably read George Bush's old speeches or or something like this. There's another aspect of this and this this week in particular. Uh, And that is President Obama needs Prime Minister Cameron's uh, support in opposing the Palestinian uh, Authority bid to be recognized by the United Nations as a, a, a single state. That is extraordinarily important. It's, ex- it's important for Obama for all sorts of reasons, for his policy, for the Jewish vote in America, and don't forget elections next year. And Cameron is wavering on this. He's got some other ideas. Uh, and if, when this goes to the Security Council, it'll go to the General Assembly tomorrow, um, and then it will go to the Security Council and the Americans will have to use their veto to stop it. The Americans don't want to use their veto. They would rather it were defeated in the Security Council. So uh, we're the good guys this week. Uh, which kind of leads me on to the next question, really. Where do you think Cameron's profile sits at the moment globally in terms of his global outlook? Well, I'll tell you, you also have to say where does George Osborne's uh, profile sit because Cameron... Uh, the big crisis in the world is not Libya, it's not Palestine, it's nowhere else. It is money, it's economics, always has been. It's the economy, stupid, uh, throughout the whole world. And that's where Cameron's international reputation will, will stand or fall. OK, Christopher, thank you very much. We have to move on. And I want to ask you, do you remember this? I want to thank Parliament for making democracy mean something. I want to pay a, pay a special tribute to Gordon Brown, the Prime Minister, a brave man who has made today a brave decision on behalf of the bravest of the brave.
Well, that was the actress Joanna Lumley, of course, speaking back in May 2009 after she successfully campaigned for former Gurkhas to be allowed to settle in Britain. Two years later, and it's been estimated 9,000 Nepalese people have settled in Aldershot and the surrounding area. The town's MP Gerald Howarth is calling for Nepalese veterans settling in Britain to be dispersed around the country, a comment which has been condemned by Gurkha campaigners as shocking and unacceptable. But Mr Howarth has told SITREP that Joanna Lumley's campaign didn't think about the consequences. Well, I think what has been shocking and unacceptable is this emotional campaign which was run two years ago where they paid absolutely no attention whatsoever to the concerns which I raised in Parliament uh, at the time. I'm trying to find a practical way through this. My constituents and I all have huge respect for the Gurkhas. I personally find them extremely courteous. I am invited to their events with my wife and we go to them. Um, They are unfailingly... um, if I may say, uh, well turned out, like um, good army uh, army personnel. Uh, whenever they come and see me, they're courteous. But there's no getting away from it. There is a problem. It is causing a massive problem that so many of them are coming to Waldershot. And my constituents see no end to this influx uh, of Nepalese. And officials have told me this week that um, the number of applications in Nepal continues to run at about 200 a month. And it's calculated that about 30% of those are coming to um, to Aldershot. And clearly, everybody can understand. It's simple mathematics. You know, we cannot cope, and therefore there has to be some kind of arrangement. What I've suggested to the Nepalese um, welfare groups is, well, why not set up uh, support networks elsewhere in the country? Because the Gurkhas have settled in other parts of the country as well, but not nearly in such great numbers as in my patch. Why not set up um, uh, networks elsewhere so that uh, uh, when they come here they are able to be uh, uh, looked after by people who understand the issues and understand their needs? Uh, That seems to me a perfectly reasonable, perfectly sensible and very practical solution. Uh, Gerald Howarth, uh, MP, talking to us a little bit earlier on. Now, Peter Carroll from the Gurkha Justice Campaign joins us uh, now. Peter, thank you very much for being on the programme. What do you think of what Gerald Howarth had to say? Well, I maintain my view that he is talking in a way that is shocking and offensive, which is completely illogical and wrong. And it's so bad, I actually can't understand how he can continue in his post as a government minister. Let's just start at the beginning. I checked the parliamentary record, and the parliamentary record suggests that Mr Howarth voted in favour of the measure to allow retired Gurkhas to come to Britain. And he's just said a few moments ago that he warned against this terrible disaster that may unfold. I simply do not understand his point of view on this at all. Isn't the terrible disaster he's warning about, though, more the fact that when Nepalese people move to Britain, a lot of them are all living in the same place, which is putting unsustainable drains and pressures on resources that are already stretched to the max? No, I don't think that is a, a, a disaster. I don't even think it's a situation. I totally accept that lots of retired Gurkhas will want to live near Aldershot because it's our great, our greatest army town. And it's quite understandable that when people come to Britain, they want to live near people they already know. In this case, it's sometimes their sons who are either still in the army or who have just retired themselves. Let's just think carefully about what Mr Howarth is saying. He keeps talking about his constituents very many of the retired Gurkhas living in Aldershot are British citizens. They're not here for any other reason than they are British citizens. We have granted that to them. So he's as much their MP as anyone else's. 
Now, if he says he needs more help with the um, perhaps you know, more interpreter services or uh, more assistance with health and education, I'd be stood next to him fighting for that. In fact, we did do that at the end of the campaign. The other thing uh, he said that was wrong there was they, meaning presumably Joanna Lumley, myself and the others, they didn't think of the consequences. Well, he's just wrong. I went to the MOD, where he's now a minister, spoke with Margaret Gilmore, a very senior official, and another official from the Home Office, and we were told, please back off now. We've been tasked by government to make sure adequate provision is made to receive and look after the retired Gurkhas, which is what we did. Mr Howarth is unfortunately on this point pretty much wrong on every aspect. Okay, so let's let's concentrate on the, on the people involved, though. Uh, you say the government were charged with sort of uh, making sure there was enough provision in place. Have they done that? Do you think a 10% increase in the population of Aldershot has been adequately uh, accounted for and supported? Well, the first thing to do is let's, let's look at the figures. Uh, I, I looked up Aldershot as defined on the internet, and it's got a population of 247,000, according to those figures. So you would immediately think, well, 10% of that's 24,000. Actually, that's not the case. It's 10% of the population of the borough of Rushmore. So, yes, we're talking about maybe two and a half to 3,000 retired Gurkhas plus a couple of dependents is 9,000 people. That is actually very small when judged against how other communities in Britain have grown. And I, I am certain of this, that if this was a Scottish battalion or brigade that had suddenly um, started to move into the area, not an eyebrow would be raised. So the Gurkha community and the Nepalese people that you're speaking to, do they feel adequately um, supported in terms of services, in, in terms of interpreters, in terms of doctors, in terms of schools? From, from their point of view, there's no problem. Well, this is where the situation with retired Gurkhas is very difficult because we in our campaign fought for one particular point, which was the right of a retired British Army Gurkha veteran to have the right to come and live in Britain. That's the, the, the campaign we won. They are still terribly discriminated against in terms of pensions and many other things. So the lot of the retired Gurkha in Britain is not necessarily a happy one. I think that the retired Gurkhas wanted the right to choose whether to come here or not, and that's what we're talking about. Mr Howarth is going down the line of talking about dispersing them. It's causing fear and anxiety now. You know, in, a, in a year's time, will he make a move in the MOD to stop Gurkhas coming? Or if they come, will they have to live in the Outer Hebrides? He's causing fear and uncertainty and trying to unpick something which was a done and settled deal, which he, I believe, actually voted for in the House of Commons. OK, Peter Carroll, thank you very much for joining us on the programme. I want to bring Christopher in at this point. Christopher, more than 200,000 Gurkhas fought for Britain in the World Wars. 45,000 have died in a British uniform. I don't think there'll be too many people listening to this programme who would disagree with the standpoint that they should be allowed to come and live here and bring their dependents, maybe what's your take on what's being provided for them in terms of service provision? Do you know, in, in public concern, uh, the Gurkhas, apart from the household cavalry, are the most recognised by the public, most recognised regiments or units in the British Army. They've got public behind them. It was very, very clear when Joanna Lumley sort of took this on. Um, what they've now got to do and the MOD has got to get really got to get a grip of this and that is they have a commitment the MOD understands it has a commitment there are a lot of people and I'm afraid um, I, w I wouldn't call um, uh, Gerald Howarth patronizing but 
a lot of people will think he's being very patronising about the way that he's sort of looking at this whole thing. So well, if his turn of phrase wasn't particularly... Well, it... it, it, it they all seem know, very nicely turned out to me. It's yes, not... I've seen, yes. I mean, I, I, I'm slightly biased in as much that I was on attachment to Duke of Edinburgh uh, in Hong Kong. Um, and I think that a lot of people would actually understand that they're not looking for something special. And that's very important. There is another aspect of this, and that is it's suggested now to me that there's still a lot of over-recruiting. And 150 Gurkhas are going anyway under the defence cuts, but there's still a lot of over-recruiting going on. And the important thing is to get that end of it right. But there is a duty. It's not just an imperial duty. There is a duty and there's a commitment. And really, the MOD's got to honour this. Still to come, it's party conference season and the Lib Dems have been talking about Afghanistan and why the big film and TV companies are shooting their war scenes in a field in Suffolk. Now it is party conference season and this week the Liberal Democrats have been spelling out their ideas in Birmingham. But until yesterday there was little mention of defence or foreign policy until there was some discussion about Afghanistan. Well a little earlier I spoke to our reporter James Hurst who was there and asked him what the Lib Dems have been saying. This came up in the foreign affairs international issues question and answer session. Somebody stood up and essentially asked why we were in Afghanistan, that they didn't think there was a real reason. Now, Nick Harvey, the armed forces minister, pretty much rebuffed that, saying that actually the reasons have been clear for many years and that it was also clear that British troops would be out by 2015. But that was the point where he, he chose, really, to issue a warning. And he said that the political process was way behind the military process in terms of getting ready for... British troops to be completely out of their combat mission. He said that political process needed to be done much faster, that we were effectively only at base camp. And he used the uh, incident this week where we saw the assassination of the former president of Afghanistan, who's the leader of the Peace Council, as evidence of just how far there is to go. And then the former leader of the party, Paddy Ashdown, who knows a thing or two about bringing peace in the Balkans, he was even more outspoken. He said Afghanistan, actually, particularly on the political front, had been a real example of how not to do an operation like this. He said it was too late. There would be no victor's peace. Peace, he said, would come, but at a price. It would include the Taliban in government and also probably ripping up the constitution as it stands now because he said it was Western imposed and that they would need a new constitution that was far more regionally based across Afghanistan. So defence then somewhat uh, of an add-on. Has it, has it been difficult for the Lib Dems as a coalition party to address defence and foreign affairs, do you think? Well, I was talking to the Armed Forces Minister yesterday after that question and answer session. He said essentially on defence, actually, there have been no big rows within the coalition. I put it to him that actually there's not much of a Liberal Democrat stamp on defence policy. And this conference has been about the Liberal Democrats saying this is how we're making a difference in government. He says actually they've been pretty united in wanting to do the best thing for the armed forces, but first of all, having to live within their means. So I think they would argue that it's not been difficult for them to be a part of it, but perhaps it is difficult to see where they are making an individual difference because they don't see it as an area of great conflict. I mean, I put to him, though, that you know they knew when they went into government there wouldn't be much money and that 
they have rolled back on a promise to double the rate of improvements to our forces accommodation. Uh, he mentioned also that they made a pledge to improve pay at the front line. He said these are still ambitions that they have, but that the financial reality means those ambitions have to be put off for the moment. Last year, of course, Lib Dem party delegates forced that uh, political hot potato trident onto the agenda. Any mention of it this time around? Yeah, now that is actually the one place where there almost are rows on defence. Um, last year, basically, delegates said to ministers, you've got to fight harder to prevent a like-for-like replacement. As we saw what actually happened a few weeks later in the defence review, the big decision on whether there'll be a like-for-like replacement was pushed until after the next election. So no, Trident didn't really come back this year. I was doing some asking around going, are you actually happy with this compromise? Basically, it's been swept under the carpet, I suggested. And actually, given that it was grassroots delegates who forced it onto the agenda last year, the ones that I was speaking to were kind of like, yeah, it's it's not definitely going ahead. They're kind of leaving it where it is. Uh, the leader's speech, of course, is the big one at any uh, party conference. Did Nick Clegg mention Afghanistan, Libya or anything about defence? Uh, no, uh, there was only really one show in town, not just for his speech, but pretty much the, the whole of the conference, and it was the economy. And uh, So no, Afghanistan Libya didn't even get a mention uh, in Nick Clegg's speech. I think that's indicative of actually pretty much what is going on in politics at the moment. Everybody is just concerned about money about the state of the economy. And I think we'll probably see that in the uh, in the rest of the party conferences as well. OK, James, thank you. Just quickly, where are you next week? Um, racking my brains. It's Liverpool next. It is the Labour Party conference that starts this weekend. So, uh, James Hurst there, as his uh, train journey around the UK uh, continues, Christopher, although he's not convinced as a defence correspondent, he's going to have too much to talk about in terms of uh, defence being on the, the topics of discussion at the rest of the party conferences. Now, you see, I think he has, but it won't come under the title of defence. Remember, James was saying there that the big issue is the economy. Yeah. Um, the economy is getting worse. Everybody says our economy, never mind global economy, European economy, is getting actually worse. I mean, because of what uh, was happening in New York yesterday, there was a 2.6 fall on the British stock market, the London stock market last night, or, or when it opened for trading this morning. So that's very important because come 2015... This government has promised there'll be at least 1%, maybe 2% increase in defence spending just to fulfil the programme, which is a cutback programme they've got now. The economists I talk to who are looking at the defence industry say there's no way that this government or any other government will be able to put up that 1%, never mind 2%. And so when James says, no, it's the economy... I think, in fact, we can actually start to extrapolate from that that defence is entirely bothered by the economy because by 2014-2015, when we're coming out of Afghanistan, the electorate, and there's an election then, the electorate will turn around and say, why are we spending all this money? We're not in Iraq, we're not in Libya, we're not in Afghanistan now. Who needs it? And that, I think, will probably tell. So if defence and the economy are so intrinsically linked, why is it not being openly talked about at party conferences? Is it because it's not a, a vote-winning topic? No, I, I can't remember an election when defence was a big issue or a, even a major issue, a sort of major issue at, uh, during an election. Trident has been uh, uh, an issue, but that's more a moral argument. And also, this is reflected in Cabinet. There are 29 members of the cabinet. They're either secretaries of state or people entitled to attend cabinet meetings. 
Um, Defence is about the fourth biggest spender with its 38, 39 billion uh, pound budget a year. The Secretary of State is not the fourth most important man in the Cabinet. He's down in the teens. He's down sort of 17, 18 in the pecking order. And I think that puts the whole thing in perspective. So James shouldn't come home just yet? Oh, no. Keep him out there. Watch his expenses. This is BFBS. Sit rep. Now, Christopher, are you a fan of historical dramas? Do you watch Downton Abbey or are you more of an upstairs, downstairs kind of man? Uh, Downton. Really? Downton. Yeah, yeah, it has to be Downton. Addicted or just... Oh, no, not addicted. The last thing I was addicted, I married. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, the new series... Let's not go there. Uh, well, the new series of Downton Abbey began on ITV at the weekend, complete with First World War battle scenes. Well, both current and serving military are known for being sticklers for an accurate portrayal, especially when it comes to uniforms and props. Well, now a company in Suffolk has committed itself to doing just that. We sent our reporter, Tim Cooper, down to the set to see if all was present and correct. <laughs> Viewers of Downton Abbey have revelled in the decadence and splendour of early Edwardian country house living. But this latest series smashes that cosy and secure world. It's 1916 and characters from both above and below stairs find themselves in the front line of the Battle of the Somme. Sergeant Stephen! Sir! everyone is taken down the line before it starts to get dark. Character Matthew Crawley there in episode one of Downton Abbey by Carnival Films for ITV. It's been a challenge to film the battle scenes, and surprisingly the answer to how to recreate First World War trenches lies in rural Suffolk. I'm walking through quite a bit of mud in a trench sunk into the ground. Wooden boards line the sides and sandbags are on top of the parapet. And if I ignore the electricity pylons hovering uh, on the horizon, it could well be northern France 1916. There's even a no-man's land and a German trench line about 100 yards away. This is the film set used for Downton Abbey. It wasn't built specifically for them, though. It's been on this Suffolk farm for a number of years as part of a company called Khaki Devil, a props and uniform specialists, which just happens to have its own trench. They were here for just over a week, which is not too bad at all, but uh, they were very slick, very well prepared, knew exactly what they wanted to shoot. Taff Gillingham runs Khaki Devil and worked as historic advisor on Downton Abbey. You really need to make them feel that you've put them into a different world. We have all of the the ammo boxes, the petrol tins that they used to carry, the water in, grenade boxes, trench periscopes, barbed wire pickets, you name it. We have everything that you need to bring it to life. I mean, obviously, it doesn't live in it all the time because it doesn't last very long if you do. Taff set up Khaki Devil as a props company after being frustrated about how inaccurately the military were being portrayed on TV drama and in films. Initially, production companies wanted uniforms and guns and so forth, but over the years, they also wanted sets. Blue Peter, for instance, would say to us, will you go and build us a trench in North Yorkshire? Off we'd go, we'd build it all, sort it all out. When we'd finish, pack it all up, bring all the bits home. And in the end, we thought, well, this is crazy. Why don't we just build something that's near us and people can come here? Lots of productions have used this set, some spending months here, others, like Downton, just a week or so. And the future's looking promising. Another film starts to shoot here soon. It's not just the business, it's about really trying to help them make better programmes. That's what we really want to do. Um, how long can we keep doing it? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, it may well be that by 2018, by the end of the centenary, we might just, to be honest, might just have had enough of it. 
Whatever the future, Taff and his team tell me they're proud of what they do, mainly because they feel they're honouring British personnel who've fought for us over the years by showing what they've done as realistically and accurately as possible. Tim Cooper reporting there from uh, Suffolk. Really interesting that, Christopher. What did you make of it? I mean, it's, I guess it's right, isn't it? If you're going to do something, do it properly, be accurate. That's it. And, and there's a lot of business for those guys as well. Uh, BBC is about to launch, and I think it's filming now, launch its, its reply to Downton. It's all based in the First World War. It's this fascination with the First World War. There's a revival of R.C. Uh, Sheriff's play um, Journey's End, on in the West End at the moment, playing to full houses. You can't get in, can't get a ticket for... Well, you probably get it for love, but I'm not sure if you can get one for money. <laughs> but, it, you know, that's very big. Uh, there's a revival in Siegfried, the sales of Siegfried Sassoon's uh, biography uh, about the First World War. If you go to uh, a bookshop, look at the section on First World War, war poetry. It is huge. This thing that the, the, the BBC is doing, it's doing with the American, uh, it's, a, it's a joint project, it's uh, HBO, they're doing it with that. But one of the reasons, it's not so much the Americans are interested in the First World War, um, because they know they won it, of course, but what they are interested in is the British aristocracy. And one thing they all have in common, whether it's Downton, Journey's End, The Other End, Sassoon, whatever it is, uh, is the British aristocracy. The First World War was the last cavalry charge of the British aristocracy, and it fascinates everybody, that sort of coming together of the aristocracy and the servant class. Which I guess is why a programme like Downton did so well at the Emmys just recently. Won four awards, including for the writer, uh, um, uh, Julian Fellows, who said, well, you know, of course I, I, I won that because you know, he knew he was that good. But, it, it's that, but he got, what he did get, was this association between a war that destroyed the flower of British youth, including the future leaders, uh, the future industrialists, the future politicians, the future artists, etc. It destroyed them. And what he got right was that it was the First World War. That's why it satisfies us. Uh, that's why it fascinates us. Whereas the Second World War, it's all about Churchill. Uh, also, there was a, a story in the pa- one of the papers last week about people who like to spend their weekends dressed in period costume as soldiers, going to reenactments. Is that taking things too far? Could, uh, could you do that? Uh, I, I don't think I, I don't think I can do it. I mean, I've done it for real, so I don't think I really want to do it again. <laughs> but well, not going back that far. But sealed knot, for example, where they have m- uh, medieval battles that still go on. We're fascinated, aren't we? Especially if it's muddy. Oh, like a bit of mud. Uh, we've got to leave it there, unfortunately. We've got to go and clean ourselves up now. Well, that's uh, pretty much all we have time for for this week. We, my thanks to Christopher Lee and to all our guests as ever. You can join the debate, whether it be about Libya or even Downton Abbey, by following us on Twitter at BFBS Sitrep is uh, where you get in touch with us. Uh, Kate Jabot is back on next week's programme. Uh, don't forget to join her then. In the meantime, I've been Matt Teal. Thank you very much indeed. See you soon. This is Sit Rep on BFBS.